I want to start with a little story. It comes from the life of the Buddha. There's a legend surrounding the moment right before he attained enlightenment, sitting under a Bodhi tree. And the story goes that as he was getting very close to that great awakening, his body started to fill with light and it radiated in all directions. It was able to penetrate into other dimensions and it reached a distant realm where one of the demon kings perceived it. The name of that demon was Mara. And he was dazzled by, by the vision of this light. And the light came with a sound, and inside of the sound he could hear a voice. And the voice was communicating to the demon king, and it said, O oh, king, there is a hero, the son of an emperor, the son of a king like you, and he's renounced riches, he's renounced his kingdom, He's renounced his name and royalty, and he's sitting under the tree of knowledge. His mind is concentrated. He's giving the supreme effort, and he's going to enter into nirvana. And when that happens, all the creatures on the earth who are suffering will get the help that they need. And the path that he's taken, others will tread that path. The road that he's gone down will be followed by others. And the peace that he attains, he'll be able to give to others. And the wisdom that he's attained, he'll be able to share with others. And so, all in all, the city of light is going to be crowded, and your kingdom's going to be deserted. And when you're a commander without an army, and a king without subjects, you will not know where to take refuge. So, this message haunted the demon king, Mara, and he tried to sleep that night, but he had nightmares. And in the morning, his son saw him. His son is not like Mara. His son was, was wiser, calmer, um, more compassionate. But he noticed the disturbance on his father's face, and he said, What's troubling you, father? And he began to, tell, began to tell him that he witnessed this light, and it came with a message. And then he had dreams, dreams of a black cloud covering the palace, his palace, and all his men deserting him. And then he tells his son, And I saw you bowing at the feet of... Uh, the hero who's sitting under this tree of knowledge. So the son hears this and he says, yeah, it's definitely disheartening to lose a battle, but with all these omens, it's probably good to bide your time lest you ingloriously get defeated in battle. So Mara, the demon king, thinks about it and he looks out of the palace and he looks upon his army and when he sees the, the massive size of his army, the might of his soldiers, his courage starts to come back and his pride comes back and he looks back at his son and he says, the man with energy 
can enter battle and be victorious. There's no other end to a battle but victory for the man who is dynamic. And he says, who is this, this uh, hero anyway? He's only one, and my army is countless. We're strong, we're brave. I'll definitely be able to crush this hero and defeat my enemy. And the son is cautioning him. He's saying, you know, the size of, of the army is not what gives it its strength. He says, the, the sun can outshine a myriad of glowworms. So if wisdom is the source of the hero's power, then a single soldier, a single hero can defeat countless soldiers. But it's too late because Mara is already consumed with pride and, and does not pay attention to what his son is saying. So he goes to his army and he says, tells them to prepare for a great battle. And like Mara, they're all overconfident. And they start to get their weapons together and they paint their faces all different colors. And some of them have multiple heads and parts of different animals like horns and wings and, and they're all gruesome and, and some of them have fire in their eyes. And they all start to cry out, you know, to prepare for the battle. And then they go to where Siddhartha, the prince, is meditating under the tree. And Mara decides that he will begin by trying to frighten him. So he calls upon the wind, and the wind starts to build up and blow, and it's become so powerful that it's uprooting trees all around Siddhartha. But he does not get afraid, and he remains undisturbed. So after the wind, the demon king decides to call upon the waters, the rain. So summoning the rain, it starts to pour all around and flood all the regions surrounding the Buddha, but the Buddha remains peaceful and none of the water touches him. So the king's starting to get frustrated. Mara's getting, getting angrier and angrier. And then he tells his army, to unleash all of their military might and to shoot all of their arrows and, and fire all their weapons at the Buddha. So they do. One soldier alone says he can shoot a hundred arrows at once. So there's countless arrows. And as they all enter into the space of Siddhartha, they transform into flowers and they all start to fall at the feet of, of the Buddha. So by the end of this onslaught, he's surrounded by petals. Like if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. during cherry blossom season, it's real beautiful. The ground is just covered in petals, pink petals. It was like that. And the army tried to come closer with their clubs and their axes, but as they approached the Buddha, they couldn't penetrate the energy of, of the light that was emanating from him. So they be, all became terrified and they scattered because they saw these signs and they remembered the warnings of uh, Mara's son. So they fled and deserted the king. And seeing this, the king realized that all the omens were true and his own son believed in the power of the hero so he started to weep, recognizing his defeat. So, 
that story comes from the mythology of Buddhism, and whether or not it's an actual event in history is not as important as the message that it can teach. So how how is the, the Buddha victorious in this final struggle? Well, you see in a lot of mythologies of the hero's journey that there is a period of temptation. It's similar to the life of Christ in the, in the desert when Satan comes. It's not Mara, it's Satan, some, some similar force or, or being that tries to use different tactics to draw um, the hero out of wisdom. So that was what Mara was trying to do, and the Buddha was able to withstand that final temptation and enters into nirvana from there. So, but what is the message of this? Well, just the other day, I realized that several of the lessons that I talk about for developing compassion in the communication spell the word petals. There are several things to consider to understand this story and to learn how to develop the skill of transforming the negative energy into positive energy or how to take the arrows of words that are intended to harm or intended to be aggressive and how to turn them into flowers that can't hurt us, how to protect ourselves. So I'll talk about tonight these several things to consider. There's uh, six things. And they kind of go in chronological order. However, you can practice any one of them at any time or pay attention more to any one of these to cultivate this practice of compassion. So if we reflect on this story, the Buddha was able to be victorious in battle, and yet he never became aggressive. If you were to observe that scene, and it's painted in lots of scrolls and in temples, and it's depicted in artwork, this scene of Mara and his army shooting arrows and them transforming into petals at the feet of the Buddha. He's not fighting. So, one of the things we can take away from the story is that to be victorious does not require us to become defensive. In reality, it's hard to differentiate between attack and defense, between offense and defense. If you watch a football game, at the line of scrimmage, there's a bunch of linemen. On the offensive side, the linemen, they're all big and strong, the linemen on the offensive side are trying to defend the quarterback and the ball. On the defensive side, the linemen are trying to get past the offense and tackle the quarterback or the receiver or running back with the ball. But at the moment of battle at the line of scrimmage, you wouldn't be able to tell who is on the offense and who's on the defense. The offense is blocking, the defense is trying to get through, and they're pushing each other like this back and forth. So similarly, offense and defense is not too different. And the reason why the, the Buddha was victorious in this battle was because he didn't see it as an attack. Because he had reached such a high state of wisdom, he didn't see 
Mara as separate from himself. And in the mythology of Buddhism, it says he realized that this um, encounter with the demonic force was not outside of himself. So he was able to see that this was just a side of himself from his unconscious, deep in his unconscious, like Carl Jung talks about in psychology, that there was this unconscious aspect of himself and it was manifesting as the demon king. And because he perceived it as his own being, as part of his own being, he was able to be self-compassionate. So he was able to step out of the pairs of opposites. So that's what awakening is really largely about to a great extent, to transcend the pairs of opposites, up, down, left, right, good, bad, and so on. So in his compassion and non-judgment, there was no battle. That's why the arrows couldn't harm him. So he didn't have to become aggressive. He didn't have to use the conventional means to protect himself. So compassion is about concern and care for the suffering of others and ultimately being able to perceive that we are not different. Being able to see the unity in everything you encounter. Ordinarily, we see um, aggression as an attack and we see that attack as something coming from outside of ourselves. So naturally, we become defensive. But through compassion, we can start to align and see the unity in all things. Once we see ourselves in everything and everyone, um, it's harder to get drawn back into that kind of conflict. And what is communication? Communication is the transmission of information. And it doesn't just happen through words, as we'll see as we go along. But communication happens in a lot of different ways. So bringing that sense of care and concern for the other and ultimately not seeing them as an other is what compassion is about. And then utilizing that energy in our communication will help us to be part of a practice that can lead us towards that power that the Buddha had. So the first letter of petals stands for posture. Posture means the body. So I said, not all communication happens with words. A big part of communication is body language. So even before we are ready to say something, it's important to be self-aware and see what you're already communicating with your body. So there are many ways that we communicate with our body, and there are many ways that we feel hurt by what people are communicating with their body. So to be aware of that, the posture of disinterest, the posture of disrespect, the posture of anger, these are all things to consider when we're thinking about our bodies. What does the posture of peace look like? What does a posture of compassion look like? It also means to actually take the posture of meditation too. That may not be practical in the moment of a disagreement or the moment of conflict, but in general, if we're practicing the posture of compassion, we're building up the inner resources that the Buddha had. So daily, to take a posture of meditation means to sit still, 
to center yourself, to observe your, your body and your thoughts and your feelings, and ultimately to be able to cultivate compassion for those phenomena. In a more practical sense, posture means to carry your body in a certain way that protects yourself and doesn't communicate violence to somebody else. So generally this means keeping more of your side to people when you're approaching them or interacting with them. From a martial arts standpoint, you're protecting your vital organs that way if you were really in a dangerous situation. When I enter into an interaction or encounter, facing forward, all my vital organs are exposed. It's also a more intimidating posture, face-to-face -face with somebody, especially standing over them or encroaching in, into their space. But showing your profile or being at an angle is more supportive. And studies show that people feel more supported and safer when people approach them that way. Can you think of anything else in the body language that communicates disrespect or harm? The eyes. The eyes. What can the eyes do? They can roll. <laughs> they can look down at the floor when, or look at the phone when the, somebody's trying to tell them something important. And it communicates uh, disrespect or disinterest. It's invalidating. So trying to bring our eyes to be present. Also, our eyes communicate a lot of energy. Rumi said, the, the Sufi poet said that uh, my eyes uh, exhale love as easy as a flower yields its scent. So the eyes are the window to the soul and depending on what they're doing, shifting all around or feeling steady, if there's compassion behind the eyes, even the eyes start to communicate something. Depending on what the eyes are doing and what the breath is doing, you can really get a sense of the posture of the person. So anxious breath is rapid, shallow, arrhythmic. So depending on what the breath is doing, we can, we can get a sense of the posture of the person, the degree of centeredness of the person. There's a saying, as is the breath, so is the mind, or as is the breath, so is the man. If the breath is chaotic, mind is chaotic. So yeah, it's important. And smile. Smile communicates friendliness, care, kindness, and it completes a circuit in our body that communicates to our own biology safety. Studies show that when I smile, uh, the immune system produces more white blood cells. Strange. Why might that happen? Well, if I smile, it probably means the environment is relatively safe. Because if we think of evolution, if you're smiling, you're probably not fighting. If you're in a dangerous situation, you probably have your game face on and showing, you know, fierceness in the face. So if the muscles are lifting up in a smile, it means that the situation is friendly and the brain responds to that and reduces the production of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. So when, when those uh, are reduced, 
there's more energy to go back to the immune system and the digestive system. It's from those systems that our fight-flight system draws energy from immunity, from digestion, because as some of us talked about before, if we're really in danger, in crisis, it doesn't make sense to fight germs, to digest your food. Better to have that energy to run faster or to fight. So smiling is a powerful posture, both internally and externally. And we don't do it enough, because on average, adults only smile 40, 20 to 40 times a day. Children smile on average 400 times a day. So there's a big gap. <laughs> we have to reclaim some of that lost cheerfulness. The arms, you know, when the arms are folded, when the hands are on the hips. So a lot of communication happens through the arms and where they, where they are you know, it says a lot. So to think about that, to be self-aware, to have bodyfulness, check in with the posture. E stands for energy. What you are speaks louder than what you say. Even if I know what I want to say, and it's all written out, and it's all kind and compassionate, if my energy is something different, then the words will fail. Because the energy speaks louder than the words. So we have to check in with the energy. What is my energy? Is, is it the energy of compassion? Or is it the energy of anger? If it's the energy of anger, then we've already been drawn into the battle with Mara. If we can get our energy to be the energy of compassion, then we are transcending good, bad, right, wrong, offense, defense. So try to get your energy into a place where you don't see yourself as being attacked. This is specifically talking about difficulties in relationships, you know, communication in the family and the workplace. Try not to see yourself as attacked because that immediately puts you on the defensive and draws you into a battle. So try to have the energy of compassion. It's actually a stronger energy than the energy of anger. Why is it stronger? Well, anger is not sustainable. Our energy doesn't last when we're angry. We ultimately get exhausted. We crash. We, we have to sleep. But you'll notice that when you're doing something out of compassion, you lose track of time. You keep going, you can keep going. If you're doing something you love, or you're doing something in the service of family or humanity, you can find deeper and deeper reservoirs of, of energy. So try to make the energy compassionate, even before you say or do anything. That takes practice. That takes practice and it manifests spontaneously when we take the posture of meditation on a daily basis. It cultivates the energy within us. Somebody asked me, how do you know if you're making progress in meditation? The simple answer is, your energy is becoming more peaceful. Your energy is becoming more peaceful and your outward compassion is growing. Your care and concern for the suffering of others is expanding. And your circle of compassion is expanding. Those are pretty much the two ways to measure your evolution or your progress in a spiritual path or in meditation. 
So a couple other things to keep in mind with energy. One of the things that keeps us in a battle or in a struggle is the spirit of competition. When I'm competing, there is a struggle for power and there is a, um, a, a fight to be right. So we have to think when we're, when we're tuning into our energy, what's more important, to be right or to be kind? It depends. It depends on your values. But if we want, you know, to get to that state, if we want to, you know, enhance our capacity for compassion, then we'll choose kindness over being right. To want to be right means that your energy is the energy of competition. And if we think about why we're in a family, why we're on a team, why we're in a workplace, it's not to compete or defeat people. It's for support, for cooperation, for togetherness. So when we remember those things, it becomes less important to be right. But people fall into that pattern in relationships and in marriages um, and in friendships. There's a scorecard and people are competing. So what about when you feel like, yeah, that sounds good, but this other person's never going to stop competing with me. They're never going to go easy on me. Well, then what do you do? You put your weapons down. So how do we do that? We decide that we will not compete. It takes two to compete. If only one is competing, it ceases to become a competition pretty quickly. Let me give you an example. When I would play uh, ping pong as a kid and matches would get too heated, I'd put the paddle in my left hand, which is my weak hand. And once the paddle is in my weak hand and the opposing player knows it, they stop keeping score. Uh, they say, why are you playing with your left hand? I say, because that's my weak hand and I want to get better, be ambidextrous, get better at the game. And so then it doesn't make sense to keep score. Then that person might go, oh, well, I'm just going to hit backhanded shots or something like that. So I decided not to compete, disarm in that way, and then it ceases to be a competition. It's not a tournament if you're not getting the best of your opponent. And that's why sometimes uh, in resilience training with bullies, we talk about you know, trying to center yourself so that the reaction doesn't come that the bull is looking for, looking for some uh, exchange of energy. That could be you know, an emotional outburst, that could be retaliation, but then there's an actual struggle for power that's, that's engaging. So put your weapons down, uh, disarm in whatever way you can with, with your energy, and try not to have the energy of anger, the energy of competition. And when we're talking about not seeing an attack as an attack, we have to practice not taking things personally. So we'll get better at the energy of compassion when we don't take things as personally. And where does this begin? It can begin in the very 
small everyday situations. So if you think of this scenario, let's say I'm walking down the street in downtown Chicago and I walk, I'm walking past a homeless person that's mentally ill and he's shouting obscenities at everybody that passes him. And then naturally when I pass him, he shouts obscenities at me. Hey, you, you stupid fool, where are you going? Come back here. Will I get drawn into that? Will I fight with him and say, you don't know me? I, I will, you know, convince you that I'm not stupid. <laughs> Probably not, right? Why? Because we don't take it personally. Because he's a total stranger. <laughs> and I don't have to live with him. <laughs> or work for him. Okay, so, total stranger. And if we, t if we think about that, it works sometimes, but other times it fails. In road rage, the person cutting off the person who's getting angry, is it somebody they know, or is it a stranger? Stranger. stranger. At the store, the cashier says something that you find sarcastic or rude, and you say something sarcastic back. Is the cashier somebody we know well, or are they a stranger? They're probably a stranger. So stranger is part of it, but then it sometimes isn't enough for us to stay um, detached, for us to not take things personally. So the other part of this would be, okay, stranger, but also he doesn't know better. He has mental illness. So I can have compassion in that situation. Because he's a stranger, I don't have to live with it every day, so I can let it roll off my back. And also because he's mentally ill, I can feel sorry or feel concerned for his suffering. So this part means that you have to do a little bit of work in the other situations. We don't know what the story is. The person cutting us off on the road, if they were racing to see their dying loved one, suddenly we wouldn't be angry, we would be compassionate. Even though they're driving erratically, that understanding would be there and then we could be compassionate again. We don't have access to that in every situation, but we can make ourselves aware of that possibility in our consciousness. Then it gets harder when they're not strangers, when, when it's our family, when it's our coworker, when it's our boss. But there's no clear delineation between where somebody is known well enough to take it personally, like I showed in those few examples, and when there's not enough circumstances that don't include you to explain what's happening. So what happens is we make the choice, I'll take this personally, and I won't take this personally. So we have to get better at not taking any of it personally knowing that there is a story in everything to explain. There's cause and effect with everything, and the cause starts before us. So when we're not taking things personally, it means practicing humility. When we take things personally, it's coming out of ego, an inflated sense of importance. This must be all about me. We sometimes fail to recognize it has nothing to do with us, especially on the road. When someone cuts me off on the road, it has nothing to do with me. If you replaced me with somebody else, they would still be cutting that, that other person off. So why am I taking it personally?
I think if we see this in our families, we'll, we'll begin to uh, develop the awareness that a lot of the things that we perceive as attacks are really not about us. It's about them. It's about their story, their upbringing, their values. If we could step back and, and see that, then our energy could rebalance. It takes practice. Um, the next one, T, stands for timing. There's a timing for everything, and sometimes the timing is just not right for harmony. So like in different scriptures, it says there's a time for peace, there's a time for war, there's a time for winter, where there's not much light, there's a time for summer, where there's a lot more light, we can do a lot more things, we can be outside. So in the philosophy of Taoism, in the Taijitsu, the yin-yang symbol, there's dark and there's light. And in every situation in life, it's either dark or light. So in communication with people in our life, the timing is either night or day. If it's night, it means no matter what you try to do, you'll not be able to work. It won't work. Just like at night, for the most part, we don't have the energy to work, and therefore we retreat and we recharge our battery for another time. If you have enough self-awareness, if you practice the posture of meditation, you, you um, do the energy work, then you can start to be mindful of the timing. Is it daytime or is it nighttime? If it's nighttime, then I need to retreat. Retreat within, step back from the situation until my resources have developed or until it, the situation is more favorable. So if we're aware of this, we won't get drawn into an unnecessary power struggle. A stands for assertiveness. So this is the very beginning of starting any kind of interaction. So these first three, we're not even doing anything yet in terms of behavior. It's all in internal. Posture, energy, timing, it's all about self-awareness. After those three have been practiced, then we can start to prepare what we might do to engage with others, to transform arrows into, into petals, into flowers. So assertiveness is what A stands for. And assertiveness oftentimes is confused for being aggressive, being strong and forceful. But there's a reason why there's a separate word for that, aggressive, because it's not the same. Assertive cognitively means to have your stress levels low. And behaviorally, it means to ask for what you want in a respectful manner. So if we think of those two aspects, cognitively to minimize the disturbance in your mind, and behaviorally to ask for what you want in a respectful way. So if in my mind I'm stressed out, and I have all this aggression in my mind, it doesn't matter if I then ask for what I want in a respectful way because there's a disturbance in my thinking. So those are the two aspects of assertiveness. So let me explain uh, what assertiveness is not. 
because we'll, we'll have even clearer understanding when we understand how we get drawn into other modes of communication. So aggression means to be forceful, to attack, to intend to harm somebody else, and to win. So aggression is the energy of competition. Aggression wants to be right. You can think of it as a, a symbol of the bull. To try to bully or overpower another person with your words, with your volume, um, or with your physical presence, or with intelligence. On the other extreme, there is passive. So passiveness is not to be confused with peacefulness. Passiveness means to take a self-defeating um, attitude in the face of, of a challenge. So passive sometimes becomes aggressive when your retreat or your silence is intended to harm somebody. So you've heard the expression, the cold shoulder or the silent treatment. That's not true, truly passive because people do that with the intention of hurting the other person. Well, I'll show you. I'm not going to talk to you for a week. We'll see how, how you like it and how things get done around here when I don't answer your texts or you know, respond to your calls or acknowledge your presence. So it looks passive, but it's actually aggressive, and that's what we call passive aggression. Here's a couple tactics that people think are assertive, but are actually passive or aggressive. One is sarcasm. Sarcasm is the indirect way of dealing with frustration. So people become sarcastic, I think, for a couple reasons. One, it's creative, so it's kind of fun. And two, it's humorous. People laugh at sarcasm in movies. It's, it's funny. It's funny, but it's at, an, at someone else's expense. And the reason why the humor creates a desire to use it is because we can fall back on that should it fail. Well, I'm just joking, you know. It's, I'm not, you know, I didn't mean it that way. It's just a joke. So that's why people resort to sarcasm, I think, because we feel creative and it gets laughs. But uh, I think it was Knowles, the author of a separate piece, that said sarcasm is the protest of the weak. If we want to be strong, we actually have to own our feelings. That's what assertiveness is all about. The second tactic that's often confused for assertiveness but is not is blame. People think they're being strong and assertive by blaming people for how they feel. It is direct, so that's why it can appear as assertive. I'm addressing you and I'm confronting you and, I'm, and it takes courage to do that. But if you're blaming somebody, you're attacking them. And if you're attacking them, you're being aggressive. Even if the blame feels truthful, because assertiveness is not equivalent to truthfulness. Assertiveness requires respect. And it cannot be an attack. So even if we feel that this, this blame is the truth, nobody feels good about, an, uh, about being blamed. When the finger gets pointed at somebody, it's, it's automatically an attack. 
So what does this mean? This means that I have to own my own feelings. That's the way around blame. If I own my feelings, I can actually tell the unarguable truth. You pissed me off is up for debate. I feel sad or I feel hurt is hard to debate. It's the unarguable truth. But it takes a lot more courage to say, I feel sad, than it does to say, you're a jerk. Yeah. Or you don't think about anybody but yourself. So the way to, to develop this awareness is to recognize that urge to start off with the word you. And if I'm going to start out with you, I'm blaming. You did this, you did that, you act like this, and we become judgmental. So not to blame. You have every right to ask for what you want. You have the right to communicate what you're feeling. But we don't have the right to blame other people for how we're feeling. Because if we break this down, if you really make me angry, if you have that power over me, then only you can make me happy. And when you put it like that, that sounds much more like codependence. Only you can make me happy. You make me angry. You have the power to make me happy. That's, that's a lot of power that I relinquish to somebody else. And that's, that's an unhealthy state to be in. We have to have the understanding that I'm responsible for my own feelings. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that I want and things that would support me in owning my feelings and transforming my feelings. But when I put it all onto somebody else, then I become a victim, totally powerless. And the third one is rhetorical questions. First one is sarcasm. Subtle tactics that are not assertive. Second one was blame. And third one is rhetorical questions. How many times do I have to tell you to put your toys away? <laughs> that sounds assertive. Something is lacking. When a parent says this to a child, it sounds assertive, but a child is fairly literal. So if you ask a child, how many times do I have to tell you to put your toys away, and they know you've already told me five times, then the logical answer is six. <laughs> and that's not the answer the parent is looking for. <laughs> and then the second thing is that if the energy behind that is aggressive, which it most likely is. Because what are we trying to do when we say, how many times do I have to tell you? We're trying to hurt another person. So in the case of a parent and a child, the child's learning that the parent is not actually asking a question to get an answer. So questions are not just for getting to the truth. Questions are also for hurting people. And that's not really a good life lesson. So. What do we do instead? Well, when you ask a rhetorical question like that, you're failing to communicate. You're not telling somebody the most important information of all, which is how you feel. So when a parent says, how many times do I have to tell you to put the toys away? They still haven't actually communicated with their child. The child knows the toys aren't put away. The child knows that they've been told before. That's not news. But it would be news to tell the child that you're frustrated. No. 
communicate your feelings. That takes courage again and ownership. But then, as a parent, you can set the limit. So now I'm taking the toys away, and you can explain why you want the toys put away. Because it's important to take care of our things, because of our value of gratitude or, or whatever it may be. You can set, set a limit then. So adults do this between each other also. Am I the only one who gives a damn about the finances? Are, are we really looking for the answer? Yes. <laughs> I really don't care if we're rich or poor or in debt forever or whatever it may be. Um, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to show me some respect? So it's the same thing. It sounds assertive. It sounds like we're dealing with the situation. But we're not really looking for an answer, and we're not telling the other person how we feel. So those are the three imposters, I think, when it comes to assertiveness. So keep in mind, then, assertiveness is the preparation to own your feelings and to ask for what you want in a respectful way. Assertiveness itself is the goal in, in, this, uh, in this practice. So when you take the goal of assertiveness, it helps you to control what you can control. People go into uh, encounters with others with the goal of them understanding me. They had the wrong idea about me. So my goal is to get them set straight. Can you control what other people think about you? No. When you make the uncontrollable your goal, you set yourself up for failure and tension and anxiety. When assertiveness itself is the goal, that means that my only goal here is to be true to myself, to honor my values of compassion, to ask for what I want in the right way. My goal is not to get them to understand me or to give me what I want. My goal is how I do it because I have total control over that. And when I reflect back and I realize that's not how I want to go about this, then I didn't complete my goal. And in that way, we become empowered. And that's why in Aikido, the Japanese martial art that is nonviolent, the master, Morihai Ushiba, says, the art of peace is victorious from the beginning because it contends with nothing. So when we've already decided that I have no goal other than to be the most effective version of myself, we're already victorious. So it's important to try to concern yourself less with outcomes because you can't control them. And bring more of your awareness into how you're doing things. How am I parenting? Am I being the kind of parent that I want to be, because I could do everything by, by the book, do everything that seems to be right, and there's no guarantee that my child won't have problems. And I can't control that, but I can control how I go about it, how I continue to respond, and realigning with my values of compassion, and patience, and respect, whatever they may be. And the next one, L, is language. So after all of that, we finally come to talking or communicating in the conventional way. So be mindful of the language. 
try to use the language of peace, the language of compassion, to contemplate the words that you want in your vocabulary and the words that you want to gently let go of. So there's a lot of things that go into this awareness of the language. It's not just the words, it's the tone of the words. It said the word is more dangerous than the bullet or the tongue is more dangerous than the revolver because a bullet can only pierce you once but the word can sting you again and again and again. So weigh your thoughts in your mind before permitting them the garb of speech. Think about your words as um, the toothpaste out of the tube. <laughs> it can't go back in. To choose your words carefully. If you do everything that we've talked about, then you'll be better and better at this. Because if your energy is already aligned, then it will be easier to choose your words carefully. So. Tone is one aspect, volume is another aspect. Even if the language that I'm using is wise and compassionate, if the volume is too high, then it, the message will be lost. So tone, volume. There's no clear uh, way to describe what the language of compassion is. Two people could say the exact same thing and it lands differently. So it depends on you. And it depends on your values and the hierarchy of those values. If compassion is higher than other values, then certain language will develop around that. So think about your values, consult your values before you speak, especially before um, responding to a challenge. If the language is out of alignment with those, then you don't use it. But somebody else may have different values. Their value may be power, competition, success, wealth. People have different values. So naturally, they're going to use language that reflects those values. And the last one, S, stands for space. Ultimately, Space means to find the amount of distance that is safe. So this, this refers to boundaries. Sometimes people have a hard time understanding boundaries and respecting the boundaries of others because they think that wouldn't uh, be an infraction if it happened to me. What people fail to think about is what is the boundary that you have that would make you uncomfortable? If you think of like like a first date. For some people, it's not a boundary crossing to be physically close. People do it all the time. And so they may think, when somebody says, that made me uncomfortable, like, well, that doesn't make me uncomfortable, you know, I know enough about you, and so on. But what if they thought in this way? What if on the first date, the person says, how much money do you make? <laughs> what if the person says, why did you get divorced? Or what if the person says, do you have a savings account? How much is in it? You might feel like not talking about that. 
You might not readily say, well, I do have a savings account, and here's how much I have saved up, and here's what it's accruing right now <laughs> in interest. Why? Why might not, you might not want to talk about those things? People might sleep with each other before they talk about those things. Because it's too soon, right? It's, you don't feel safe sharing that information. So wherever our boundaries are, we have a boundary. Just because that particular interaction doesn't cross your boundary doesn't mean you don't have a boundary. And if people have this kind of empathy, when somebody's boundary is crossed, just because that's not a, a boundary crossing for you doesn't mean you don't have the, you know, the potential to be harmed. So to think about our boundaries, to think about other people's boundaries, and to find what that safe distance is. It could mean physically what the safe distance is. It could be psychologically, like in the examples I gave. Psychologically, I don't feel safe talking about how much money I have or don't have, and talking about my previous relationships. The point here is that we have boundaries, and we need to have some sort of access code before we release that information, before we reduce the boundaries between us, before there's a free exchange of intimacy, not just limited to physical intimacy, but intimacy of ideas. Even in a close, close relationship, even in a marriage, people still want to have some private space in their heart or in their mind or even in the home. And to respect that space can be healthy. If you think of in nature and wild animals that are endangered, like leopards, tigers, grizzly bears, lions, does it make you sad to think that some of these animals are completely threatened, their survival is completely threatened? It makes me sad to think that there's only a handful of some of these animals in sanctuaries. And, and if you think about being in the space close to those animals, they might attack you, they might kill you. They're man-eating man tigers. And yet still, many of us in our compassion would say, yeah, but I don't want them exterminated. Why do we not want them exterminated? Because there's a safe space between us. I may have a kitten as a pet, and I can hold the kitten and play with the kitten, and it's totally fine. We have, that's, that's where our boundaries are. They're very close to each other. But the tiger has to be at a much longer distance. And when it's at that distance, I feel love for the tiger. If I'm too close to the tiger, then it becomes aggressive. I can play with the cat and love the cat. I can love the tiger, but only from a distance. Similarly, in human relationships, we've got to think about what the appropriate boundary is. If we have the right boundary, we can uh, restore our compassion. It's hard to maintain compassion when the boundaries are all crossed. So practice having the appropriate amount of space psychologically and physically. And space also means silence. Because in the five elements, the final one is space. Space is different than air. Air moves all around, but st space is totally still. So this also means that at the end of pedals, these steps, you come back to stillness. You come back into silence. And 
peace is ultimately communicated, compassion is ultimately communicated through silence. The most powerful transmission of spirituality from a master to a disciple happens in silence. Some masters taught only in silence. Silence was the method of communication of truth in lots of ancient spiritual traditions. You just kept yourself in proximity. That's called satsang. Sat means truth and sangha means association. And if you're close to truth or peace or wise people, then the communication happens in silence. So those are the techniques for cultivating compassion in our communication and ultimately being able to see the people in our life as not separate from us. They are the unique players in our game of life that either we have chosen somehow subconsciously or life or the universe has chosen for our particular life lesson. They are pushing your buttons in the very way that is necessary for you to develop the self-awareness to transcend and to go on to the next level. That's why in the case of the Buddha, it was the most aggressive attack of all because of his high attainment. So similarly, we're dealing with some type of Mara and, and his legion of soldiers. People are hostile. People are aggressive. People are manipulative. People are competitive. But if we can grow ourselves in this way, it can all be absorbed in our compassion and all of those words can turn into flowers. So I should practice being successful at this technique of petals even when I'm not physically present with the other people. To see myself as the hero and the attackers with their words of aggression, their taunting words, their temptations, transforming into flowers at my feet. So to practice that visualization of success, because a lot of times without realizing it, we practice failing. We see ourselves failing at things in life. We see ourselves not getting what we want. We see ourselves becoming aggressive, how we would hurt somebody, how we would tell them off. And instead we need to establish that uh, compassionate energy and then visualize ourselves uh, triumphing and transcending the battle of good and evil, right and wrong, offense and defense.